0: Welcome to the AWP Podcast Series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP Conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Colleen Robertson Abel, Millicent Accardi, Marty McConnell, Eileen Miles, and Rita Mae Reese. You will now hear Rita Mae Reese provide introductions.
1: Hello everyone, and thanks for coming. This is from Rent Parties to Kickstarter, democratizing the patronage of poetry. I regret to say that the panelist who was supposed to talk about rent parties could not be with us. In fact, couldn't even throw her own rent party because the university where she teaches told her that that's not something that tenure track professors do. So you're in luck though, because I'm going to tell you about what a rent party is. (laughs) They were really big in Harlem. In like uh... The depression era and then post-war when rents were high and salaries were really low and Langston Hughes had a really great collection of advertisements for them so if you search like Langston Hughes rent party you'll get to see some of these really cool little cards that people made up and they always had really cool rhymes at the top of them and that's why he liked them um... <clears throat> so what it was people would provide music and booze and charge like fifty cents of the door so they could make rent anyone here ever throw a rent party? I've been to one. You've been to one? I've been to one, but i never throw one. All right, so questions for rent parties. Go to sure. Marty sure. at the end, or now you have an assignment. Someone here has to throw a rent party, and then report back to us. Or better yet, you could just invite us. So our panelists that we have today are going to talk about crowdfunding lessons from Spot Us. Frida Kahlo, Etsy, and online workshops, GoFundMe grants and reading series, and the role of economic histories of cities, the rise of writing programs, and LGBT invisibility, the role that those all play in poetic poverty. We'll be hearing from Colleen Robinson-Abel, Marty McConnell, Millicent boyes Acardi, and Eileen Miles, in that order. So please hold your questions for the panelists until the end. I want to talk to you today um, about kind of thinking outside of the book as an alternative um, to support for poetry and I want to talk to you about an alternative to PayPal called Dwolla, which is D-W-O-L-L-A. Has anyone here heard of that? It's an online transfer system that I think could change the way we value poetry. So after my first book was published, I started thinking a lot about books as a delivery system for poetry and also as a delivery system for financial support for poets. I'd spent thousands of dollars submitting to contests and then a lot of my own money traveling for readings. And I slowly gave in to the realization that I'd never earn a dime of royalties on the book. Luckily, I'd read The Gift by Lewis Hyde around the same time that book talks about the importance of the gift economy of creating community through giving and receiving gifts I realized then that my book had been a gift from Eloise Klein-Healy and the folks of Redhead Press so in the gift Hyde talks about how important it is to keep gifts moving so I began thinking about my book that way rather than as this failed commodity object and that uh, you know at least reduced my anxiety so, And I also noticed it really seems to be mostly students and poets who buy poetry, and a lot of them are fairly broke fairly often. And 18 or 20 bucks is a lot to spend on a book you might never actually read or only read part of and then not like. And that got me to thinking about how we don't know we love a poem right after reading it or hearing it for the first time usually. I think it's when a poem comes back to us, when a few lines spring to mind of their own accord, or when life has sucker punched us again and we go to that poem to keep us company in our pain that's when we love a poem or there's a poem we read out loud to friends because it's so damn funny its lines become a catchphrase with our friends (laughs) these are the poems we should be paying more for these poems are worth a lot and no one is going to go out and buy the book again and even if they did the poet would only get maybe a buck eighty at most out of the deal we have the technology now to simply send money for what we value and it's really very easy. The company called Dwala that I mentioned earlier lets you transfer money to anyone with just their email address or phone number. Any transfers of ten dollars or less has no transaction fee. And above that, the transaction fee is a whopping twenty five cent. So if you have kind of any selling apparatus on a website or anything, I would strongly encourage you to shed PayPal and uh, go with Dwala. And I'm not trying to say that we don't need books or journals, though perhaps, as a friend of mine recently suggested, we need slightly fewer of them. I think we can't keep hoping that books are going to perform this function that they're not capable of performing except in very rare instances. I also think it's great that poets can make money by making truffles. There's some really good truffles made by Two Poets Truffles, if you're looking, and uh, by doing Indiegogo campaigns and writing haiku at corporate functions, which apparently you can make more than $200 an hour at. (laughs) But look, you already do a lot. I don't think you need to do more. I think you deserve to get paid for what you already do. Poetry has never been a great fit for capitalism, and that's... One of the things I love about it. It helps create, among other things, community and relationship, which we need even more than money. So I think by acknowledging the gift nature of poetry and using the technology that's already here, we can create a wider culture of support and a wider community for poetry. Like Arlo Guthrie said in Alice's Restaurant if one person does it, they'll think he's nuts. But if a bunch of people do it, They'll think it's a movement. So, thank you.
2: So, I'm just going to start with a little story, even though I think I'm preaching to the choir here with everybody in this room. But um, when I was in my late 20s, I lived here in Minneapolis, and I applied for my first and only grant. Uh, this was through the Minnesota State Arts Board, and I had no idea what I was doing but I dutifully filled out my project proposal and my statement about why I needed the grant and what I would use it for. And I was honest about my financial situation. My husband was a graduate student at the time. I was working a couple different part-time jobs um, and it was a really rough time. Plasma selling was involved and uh, the board deliberations were open to the public. So you could go over to the open book building to hear the panel talk about your grant application. And I thought this was a golden opportunity to hear what these kind of deliberations were like. Um, So I sat there for many, many hours until they got to my application. And really the only thing I remember about their conversation was that at one point, one of the panelists threw his hands up in the air when they were talking about my statement of need and said, it's like, okay, okay, we get it. You've suffered. So, needless to say, I was rejected. (laughs) Several years later, I actually went to a panel at AWP about how to fill out these kinds of grant applications, and I learned something that had already become obvious to me, which is don't talk about how much you need the money. Even though you're supposed to talk about the money, you're not supposed to talk about how much you need it. Um, And I've never really understood that very well. I am distressed by the attitude that I frequently encounter when people talk about the realities of money and being a poet. People get uncomfortable, people get embarrassed, people get ghosted out, mm, which I think I invented that phrase maybe, but I, I like it if I did. And to be fair, people aren't widely comfortable talking about money outside of writing either. Um, but the reason that I tell this story about the Minnesota State Arts Board is not to suggest that there was anything wrong with their decision, my application sucked because my poems sucked at that time. And that's, that's fair. But because I think that we as poets need to be able to stand up and say, I need help, and not be scorned for it. So I want to talk about what this kind of help might look like. Part of the title of this panel is Democratic Patronage, and so I want to talk about a specific angle of this. Um, I think maybe more than one of us might talk about crowdfunding in some shape or form today, but I want to look at a specific sort of case study, if you will, to see what we as poets can learn from that. Have any of you guys heard of the crowdfunding site Spot Us? Okay. Um, Spot Us was a journalism crowdfunding site that was founded in 2008. And the way it worked was that a journalist would pitch a particular story and would ask people to contribute toward getting that story funded. Or, as a member of the public, you could go to the site and suggest a topic that you would like to see get covered. So, for example, I might go there and say, hey, I think a journalist should do a profile of that Minnesota State Arts Board guy. Um, and then I could contribute money toward getting that story written. I first heard of Spot Us when the writer Rachel Howard, who's published a memoir called The Lost Night*, uh, used the site to try to fund freelance dance reviews in San Francisco, where she's an established dance critic. She posted a link to her pitch on Facebook, and just as I was sort of about to go check it out and fund it, Spot Us shut down. When I saw her post, I started thinking right away about how a platform like that might translate into poetry. A popular general crowdfunding site like Kickstarter, I think, poses maybe some problems for poets. First of all, Kickstarter has to approve your project. And then you need to adhere to the system of rewards that Kickstarter has. So, you know, for 10 bucks you get a copy of my book. For 100 bucks, you get a copy of my book plus a vial of my tears or whatever. <laughs> Which means more work for us, like Rita May was talking about. We don't need more work. But a format like Spot Us worked a little bit differently. You could say something like, "I want to write a chapbook about Lady Godiva." Uh, people who believed in that project could contribute, and you'd be able to use their donations to fund your writing, whether or not you met your goal. If the donors agreed, which is a significant difference from from Kickstarter, for one, um, and no rewards. A model like that seems like it would have fewer hoops than Kickstarter, and the fact that it's genre-specific is really important because it means that you wouldn't necessarily have to fight through the noise of a vast number of other projects. People who loved poetry would know exactly where to go. I kept this idea in my brain, and then when I was thinking about this panel, I decided it was time to investigate why Spot Us folded. So, Spotus was founded by one guy, this guy called David Cohn, in 2008, and it was so successful that it was bought out by American Public Media in 2011. And after its acquisition, David Cohn stepped down, um, and the project's funded percentage went from 98 to 37. And so in an effort to figure out why that happened, American Public Media, which now owned it, decided to conduct a review, and they found a bunch of different things. But here's what's relevant for us, I think. They found that the failure rate for writing projects was about 7% higher than for other projects, that the explosion of other journalism crowdfunding sites made Spot Us's pioneering importance diminish. So the more of them there started to be, the less anybody wanted to stick to just the one. Um, And that overall, journalism just wasn't a very large slice of the crowdfunding pie. It was like 0.13%. And so it wasn't a big deal to them to shut it down, which is exactly what they did. And when they did, they said, you know, journalists, you can just always go to Kickstarter or Indiegogo. That should work just fine for you. And journalists, as you might imagine, were not super thrilled with that. So here are the takeaways for me. For one... A genre-specific site just for crowdfunded poetry projects would be the only one of its kind, as far as I know. Feel free to tell me differently if you know otherwise. Which would be an advantage if the lessons from Spot Us hold true. It could devote itself to the mission of our genre. It would allow poets to move forward with funds without necessarily needing to rely on a large number of donors to meet a goal. I'm not sure we can make any promises about failure rates, because we are poets, after all. But I think we would do our best, so uh, there is one other difference that something like this would have versus spot us, which I think is also important to mention. Once a piece of journalism was funded and produced, it was made available for free under the Creative Commons license and it could be reprinted by any news organization and it had to be available to the public online, so maybe people were less inclined to back something that they knew that they could eventually get for free. Or maybe there's just a difference in mindset between funding journalism and being a patron of the arts, which I think carries a different weight for people. Um, And as Rachel Howard told me, there's a whole different dynamic to getting people's buy-in beforehand, making them supporters of what you're doing rather than consumers of it. And I think the hardest part would be finding a poet who knows computer code. So (laughs) thanks. Thanks.
3: That was me shout whispering, am I next? I am next. Hi. So I'm going to talk about a couple of different things. And I had this whole thing where I was going to start by talking about, and I'm going to tell you this story anyway, even though it just reinforces something you all already know. A month or two ago, my girlfriend and I were watching this uh, documentary on Susan Sontag, which is amazing. And in the middle of it, she pauses it and she's like, I just have a question. I'm like, What? because you're like this hyper-intellectual visual artist, what could you possibly not understand? And she's like, how does she get any money? <laughs> she's like, how can she afford to like do these things and think these things? And I was like, I know, because you're an adjunct, you know, and you're a visual artist and all that. And it was like, oh, my God, there was just this moment where we were like, oh, shit, you used to be able to like, just be a professor. And that's what you did. And then you got to, like, travel the world and write important things and think lots of thoughts and take sabbaticals. So I just wanted to sort of put out there that that is not the world we live in anymore. Not that you all don't know this, but we do not live in this world, right? And, you know, the reality is that even if you get into this academic realm, you know, you're just, it's a broken system and you're functioning within that. I also want to point out something we all already know, which is that we're entering uh, MFA programs at a rapid, rapid pace, um, some of which are fully funded, some of which, like the one I went to, well, you just pay off for the rest of your natural life. Um, And you just just say that. You're like, okay, so I'll be paying this off the rest of my life, and it saved my life, so that's worth it. You know, like my life is worth being in debt forever. It really is, most days. But, you know... To me, there, has to be, uh, there have to be some alternatives, and those alternatives have to feed those of us who've gone through the system. It has to feed the poets who are doing the teaching and the education, and it has to feed the people who may or may not um, be ready to go into MFA programs, who may or may not ever want to do that, but like, have this desperate need and want to learn about how to write poetry better, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that you need an MFA. Here's a big secret. Somebody else probably said this on a panel at some point. But I'm just going to go ahead and say it anyway. So, you know, we're in this this cycle, right? And I was going to write on the whiteboard because I get really excited about whiteboards, but I'm not going to do it. Where, you know, everybody goes into MFA programs and you go into it and you're like, okay, and then I'm going to have a book or seven and then I'm going like, to get an adjunct job and then I'm going to like slog through that and then I'm going to get a tenure track and, and then they're going to eliminate tenure and I'll be screwed. You know, so it's, it's this vicious cycle. Um, and so we think for me what's really important is that we have to uh, develop some sustainable solutions. And for me, the key there is this question of sustainability and building sustainable lives for ourselves. I was fortunate enough to have the experience during my graduate school work to sit down with Marie Howe, who was one of my teachers, on a day when she was feeling particularly candid. And she was like, well, what are you going to do when you finish here? You know? And she's like shaking her hair around. And she's like, what are you going to do? You know? What are you going to do when you finish here? You know? And I'm like, oh, you overwhelm me. But, it, and I said, you know, I wanna, I'm going to get a book and then I'm going to teach. And she was like, why? Why are you going to do that? And I said, because that's, that's what you it's what you do, you know? And she said, no, it's terrible. It's terrible. You want to teach all day, talk about poetry all day, and then you want to go home and write poems? You don't want to go write poems at that point. Do anything else. Do anything else you can. And I'm like, oh, I'm freaked out and I want to cry. But I always sort of held that, you know? It opened up for me this understanding that, that I could be a poet and I might be able to be a better poet if I didn't teach poetry all day long. And then I, I heard Lee Young Li talk at the Dodge Festival one year, and he was like, I work in a factory. And I lift boxes. And I do that to, to preserve my brain space for poetry. And uh, now, of course, he doesn't do that because he's Lee Young Lee. You know, he doesn't have to lift boxes anymore. But he did that. And so I want to talk for just a minute about the the work that we could talk a lot about having to do different kinds of work or having to, you know, work at coffee shops or wait tables or, you know manage offices or do whatever it is it takes to get by. And there's that. But to me, there's also a question of saying, is it possible not to have to do more work, but to say, is there other kind of hard work we can do? And it's taken me a while and, and years of working in nonprofits and writing grants for them and that sort of stuff to figure out for myself what this is. And and so I've been working lately to figure out How I can work with other people. And so I'm doing this thing that I'm calling growth coaching, where I'm sitting down with people and saying, you know, what lights you up aside from maybe the art you're specifically doing or the fact that you're hoping to pass the bar, and saying, okay, like, how can we do that? And how can you do that in a way that either makes you money or gets you the things you need? I mean, I barter this vision coaching with my chiropractor (laughs) because she wants to leave this, this place where she works with these other chiropractors and open her own place. And so I'm like, great. You want me to read your tarot cards and tell you what's coming up and talk to you about where your vision is and that sort of thing. And you'll fix my knees. And she says, sure. So that's another way to sort of step out of, of the structure and out of the systems that have been set up for us. And you know, I was talking, there's someone I'm working with who's literally, you know, through law school and thinking, and he's, he's waiting for the bar and it's killing him. He didn't pass it last time and he's waiting for the next one. And I'm like, how do you feel about that? And he says, well, I feel like getting into the legal profession is just, you, you have to get sort of jumped in. Like they just beat the shit out of you over and over and over and over again. And I'm doing these unpaid slash tiny paid internships and all that. And then eventually they let you in. And I'm like, well, what happens when you get in? And he's like, well that I'm in and I'm like talk to me about the system you're getting into you know and so we talk about that and I'm like what is it going to be like on the other side of a system that like pummeled you on your way into it and let's then also talk about maybe other reasons you went to law school which was to understand another broken system but I'm like you're a brilliant writer maybe you should be blogging about these things and not worrying about getting you know passing the bar because you can't think about it you know Think about restorative justice. Think about other kinds of work you can do with this information you have that will also light you up, will also let you feed your family, all those sorts of things. So so I just think it's important for us to understand that there's kind of a new paradigm happening. Like we can get pissed about what's happening in terms of adjuncting, right? Um, And we should. We should be mad about it, right? We shouldn't say things like, Adjuncts only make the same amount of money as fast food workers because that's wildly classist and horrible and implies that, like, fast food workers? Oh, how could we only make as much money as them? Like, well, they give you your coffee. But to understand that we're in this new paradigm where oftentimes we are talking about creating patchwork quilts of work and you create work and you figure out ways to maybe get paid for that, you know, you use these systems, and it's not just going to be one thing anymore is really my point with that. I'm going to talk very, very briefly about this whole Frida Kahlo situation that's going on with me. So I wrote this poem, Frida Kahlo to Marty McConnell, and and then the internet took it over, and now the internet thinks that Frida Kahlo said it, um, including this one particular line from it. Like, it's all over Tumblr, and, and it's all over Pinterest, and all this, and there's like, like little post-it notes that say, take a lover who looks at you like maybe you are magic, maybe you've seen it, handwritten on a terrible post-it note or with stars behind it. Or Jasmine and Aladdin which is really upsetting you know but so, so there's this whole thing that happened with it and it's like blown up and people ha- like this woman made like a wall hanging of the line and is selling it on Etsy and then got really upset when I called her on it and was like maybe just don't sell that because also you know Frida Kahlo has an estate and stuff so even if I didn't say it but anyway point being I'm finally getting to the point where I'm like okay I have to get out ahead of this and also like just connect with one of these websites where you can do print-on-demand, and so then I will put the line on mugs and T-shirts and whatever and have some sort of passive, passive revenue stream from it. Like, I'm just going to have to suck it up and do that. That's fine, because otherwise Hallmark is going to do it. But, you know, so thinking about, like, what are the places you can dip into that might generate that sort of stuff? You may not be fortunate enough to have somebody randomly on the internet attribute some line of yours to someone famous, but there might be other things people would pay for. If you write brilliant lines of poetry and you put them on a t-shirt, somebody might very well buy that because people buy stuff on t-shirts all the time. The last thing I want to talk about, and I was going to bring my phone up to time, and I have no idea how long I've been talking, but it's not too bad, I don't think, because I talk fast, so I'm going to slow down. It has to do with the fact that a lot of, a lot of people I know are starting to, in stepping outside of academia and creating opportunities for people to learn about poetry and how to write poetry that is more impactful. I, I don't like to, you know, better poetry is just bullshit. Uh, aesthetics questions but like write more impactful poetry write better the poetry they want to be writing they're starting to do more online workshops they're starting to do more workshops in their homes they're starting to do individual coaching and that sort of stuff the trouble is we're all doing it in these little tiny isolated pockets you know and it's really hard to find so all you can do is sort of like go in a Facebook group and be like I'm looking for an online workshop and then there's this moment of silence and everyone goes I teach online workshops I think they're pretty okay you know, and it's just like this awkward, terrible self-promotion thing. And I think it's really important for people to be able to access that. You know, the only way that we're going to create a system outside of the system that exists in terms of the you know academia is for there to be ways for people to connect. Um, and so, <laughs> a friend of mine and I are going to launch a website, and uh, it's going to be sort of like a like a Yelp, but for writing programs and that sort of thing. So people will be user reviews. It'll be sortable by like, I want a queer-only workshop. I want a a workshop that is just for people of, you know, uh, South Asian descent. I want something online. I want one-on-one support. I want to be able to get my manuscript edited, that sort of thing. Sortable in that way. And then the people can give reviews and be like, I had this amazing experience or like, ah, this was super creepy and I will never go back to this person's home again or that sort of thing. Legit, that things, things like that happen and right now we don't have any way to tell about it. So... It's important to me that these connections happen for people like pre-MFA, post-MFA, alternative to MFA. It's going to be called, the the URL is just thewritinglist.com. Right now all that exists is it just says thewritinglist.com. Do you want to be on our mailing list? Let us know. Um, But we'll probably be in beta this summer and launch by the fall. Um, And really the idea with this is that it's a way for people to, to connect and to get... the the resources they need, because we can look at, like, U.S. News and World Report list of the top MFA programs, for whatever that's worth, but there isn't a central place we can go to to find out, oh, Kim Adnesio teaches these amazing online workshops, Rachel McKibbins teaches these amazing online workshops, you know, you can work one-on-one with people, that sort of thing. I was astonished when I started sort of culling through and thinking about who I knew who did this, that there's so much out there. So, I think I'm going to pretty much stop there. The biggest thing is that I just want to say that, for me, this question of democratization of support also has to deal with accepting the fact that we do live in a capitalist society, in a capitalist structure, and so we have to find ways to subvert that and also to function within that. And so that has to do with barter, it has to do with connection, it has to do with collaboration, and I want to urge us
0: towards that. Okay. So I guess I'm next now. I love the idea of not doing more. And um, (laughs) I'm probably going to be talking about the exact opposite of that, doing a lot more. So I'm sort of a scrapper, and I try and get money and in-kind donations however I can. So I thought I'd list some very practical ideas of how I scrounged about and got money for a reading series. Much of my fundraising has revolved around a literary series called Kale Soup for the Soul, featuring Portuguese-American poets reading work about family, food, culture, identity, and immigration. As Amy Sarah Batista said, Kale Soup for the Soul brings together geographically diverse writers, telling stories about who they are and not what they are in the past four years we have given over 30 events readings and workshops featuring 28 different portuguese american writers in cities from coast to coast the midwest and portugal about 75 percent of our events are funded in some way through honorariums expenses or travel how do we do it it's all about connections and relationships How do you do it, you ask? You ask everyone you know. People you don't know, friends of friends, and those on the same path you are on. You tell strangers on a train about what you're up to. But mostly, it takes a strong commitment from a small core group of people. Now, I'm going to start with our reading in Chicago, which was started in 2011, and we actually read in Chicago in 2012. And here comes the hard work part. (laughs) I googled close to 100 venues starting in the summer of 2011, everything from bars to bookstores. Chicago Cultural Center showed the most interest and ended up donating a beautiful ballroom. Normally they rent rooms for weddings, but they also set aside space for cultural events. And I was in California at the time trying to book a gig in Chicago and not knowing anyone there, so it made it a little more challenging as well. The room alone where reading was held, normally rents for $3,000. After months of planning, the cultural center also decided to provide audio, setup, security, and a bartender. When we first started out, they were very interested in our group, and they were generous in this amazing room with, like, stained glass windows and as it continued she's like well you need the, the director was like you're going to need a bartender if you have a wine bar you're going to need security this is going to cost this much but as we worked together she says well you know I think we can pick that up <laughs> and then so at the end we didn't pay anything one of our writers was a member of poetry bordello in Chicago and they donated appetizers at a value of two hundred dollars through a friend of a friend, the Sons of Italy donated three cases of wine worth $360 because they were interested in our community. Through music schools, I contacted a local street musician, guitarist Gabriel Chapman, who agreed to learn Portuguese songs and provide live music for nothing. All he wanted to do was hand out his cards. We ended up getting some donation for him, but he was just thrilled with the idea, and so. Results? We had an audience of over 100 with 500 views on live stream in the U.S., Portugal, Brazil, Mozambique, Macau, the Azores. We had interviews on TV news in Portugal. Monetary value of donations was about $5,000. East Coast Tour 2013. How did we do it? After hearing Kale Soup for the Soul read in Lisbon, in Portugal, the directors of three universities joined forces to bring Kale Soup to Brown, UMass, and Rhode Island College to provide cultural stories and connections to their students. Once someone gets a picture of what we do, they start trying to figure out how they can plug this into their own environment. Like Tom Sawyer painting a fence, our enthusiasm about Portuguese culture has an addictive effect. How can I fit this thing into my college? They begin to think about resources they may call upon and add to this core of an idea that they just witnessed. This is so great. How can I bring this to my community? This thinking turns a boxed wine and cheese event into a potluck bonanza banquet. Where you have local restaurants contributing food and bakers adding to the flavor, it becomes more. It is transformed from an academic activity to a celebration of all that is familiar and warm and life-changing. At Rhode Island College, we gave two readings and two workshops. Students received lunch and a tour of the school. Many were children of immigrants who were the first in their families to attend college. At UMass Dartmouth and the Portuguese archives, we had a reading and a Q&A with refreshments, including kale soup. Results... The audience of 80 high school and community college students in two sessions at Rhode Island College, five poetry workshops about placemaking and community college students. An audience of 50 at Brown University. Total value of donations we received travel, in kind donations, and some meals. The key to that was we got three different colleges who each had limited funding, and they said, We'll kick in one night for these four writers. The other college said, We'll kick in a little bit, but together they were able to bring us. What I didn't mention, to save on expenses, blood, sweat, and tears, one writer stayed with his family in Fall River. The other three writers shared a room at a comfort inn in New Bedford. Two writers received faculty supplemental funding from their universities, which they didn't even know was available to them as adjuncts until we started thinking and generating ideas, and they're like, hey, I can get $500. So we all kind of worked together with different kinds of donations and ideas. The car reading series at University of Illinois Champaign, fall 2014. The car reading series sponsored travel for four riders for a reading at University of Illinois. A second reading in QA was held at the Literatures and Language Library on campus. What didn't I mention? To save on expenses, we used points from Hotels.com. We also sold books at the bookstore to help with incidentals. Massachusetts Reading, 2013, Salem, Cambridge, and Boston, three venues working together again. The Boston Portuguese Consulate provided a venue, a book table, wine, and catered appetizers, and paid 10 writers $50 stipends each. The Massachusetts Poetry Festival and Valente Library offered honorariums. Seattle, 2014, the Luso Foundation in Portugal provided $800 travel stipends for each writer. We had five. We participated in an AWP panel and an off-site library reading, which was recorded for NPR through Poets West. Tricks of the trade. To save on expenses, kale soup readings are often planned during conferences when writers are already in town. To save money on expenses, we utilize a combination of local and non-local riders. So you don't, instead of flying in four or five riders from California to New York, you use two or three local New York, and then you fly in one or two from across. That way you don't have a reading that's all people from the same area, but you have a mixture, and you can afford to have a group instead of just sponsoring one. Some writers receive supplemental funding from universities where they teach, state council grants, or independent firms like Quick Grants. This is from Los Angeles, the Department of Cultural Affairs. We use frequent flyer miles, discounts, hotel points, GoFundMe, and whatever else we can come up with. We ask for funding from organizations that support our cause. Branding is everything. We could have been called the Portuguese Writers Association or the Luso American Academic Snobby Club, but no, we called it something else. We reached out to a sense of community, to a familiar touchstone, to a place where food acts as an entry point, to so much more. Everyone who has a Portuguese heritage recognizes kale soup as comfort food, as something they remember from childhood, and once you taste it, you want more. Last bit of advice. In the midst of it, don't think about the steps. Think about the dance. Thank you.
4: Hi. This has been really great. The thing that's weird is that I, I feel like... I don't know if it's weird, but um, I mean, I have thoughts about everything that everybody said. <laughs> and p- some of it I, I realized, I was like, oh, I've done that. You know, I mean, like, I, I think, like, I started... Being a poet in the '70s, and so a lot of it was pre-internet, you know, and stuff. And so some of the things, like I I have to say, one of the most bountiful financial things I ever did was running for president in the '90s. You know, it was just because I got like 28 gigs. I mean, I just toured 28 states in, in you know, like several months and stuff. And it was just like people loved the idea. But it was, it was so much about, and it was like a pre-internet kind of self promotional device, but it was founded in in a real feeling of discomfort with politics and what was going on exactly then. So I think it's interesting, or, you know, like I loathe, um, I've only done a little bit of online teaching, and it was just really creepy for me. But... (laughs) I was a do-it-yourself workshop teacher in New York, and it's how I learned how to teach. You know, It's like making flyers and putting them in the gate bookstore, putting them in the poetry bookstore, putting them in the performance bookstore. So I, I feel so, you know, like I, when, when you asked me to be on this panel, I feel like this is, this is home for me. The thing I thought about Spot Us, which I remember when that first, was that the right name? When that first came out, I think the distinction between journalism and poetry, for me, just is that whenever you look for money for yourself as a poet, the the reason people are resistant is they think they're being asked to fund your body. It's like the problem, I think, with poetry is the body. It's sort of like everybody realizes that what we're really being funded for is not to write the poem, but to support the person, the body that holds the poem, you know? And that's always troubling to people, whereas journalism... And I think it's why running for president was more successful than... Being a poet, because it's like, yes, for America, I'll support you. But to write a poem, no, you know, because that's just Eileen Miles, you know. Susan Sondag wasn't an academic. I, she was really anti it. That was part of she, where she drew the line. And I think part of it was a presumption of a certain... I think she got a Ph. She didn't get a PhD. She, was, she got a graduate degree but I don't know at which point, maybe she did teach at some point, but I know that a friend of mine who is an academic was so aware of the fact that Susan was very snobby about the fact that I am not an academic. That distinction was very important to her. Weird, well, and I have one thing about Susan Sontag, but I wrote a little piece here. So my piece is called Naked Screaming Poets. And my response to Rita, you said, what are you going to talk about? I'm going to provide a narrative of when and how poets make money, how economic histories of cities and the rise of writing programs have contributed to poetic poverty, and how LGBT invisibility equals no dollars. So um, everything I do in a context like this is a little writing problem and a little living problem. I want to connect to Rita's invite, which when I got... I thought, how can I not respond positively like the question of poetry and money is the question of my life? So I sent her the above, which, which I just read, which I call an abstract of what I plan to say. You know, and, and definitely everything is a performance for me. Everything is a way to kill time, because that's poetry, I think. I think the major innovation a poet can always implement to make a living is dignity. Where do I stand with poet jokes? You know, If we were a little more of a problem for our culture, there would be a lot of them. <laughs> Jokes, I think, are how we police difficult communities in our culture and how we police difficult aspects of ourself. You know, it's sort of like the fiction writers in a writing program always make jokes about the poets. I'm a sober person, and people, when they talk about their recovery, they always talk, oh, I was drunk and I was writing bad poetry. Like, poetry is like everybody's always recovering from poetry, you know? Like, it's sort of like back there. And I think part of being the problem of being a poet is you're still back there in other people's um, thoughts about their own histories. I think the first money I ever got for poetry was for the workshop reading at St. Mark's in 1975, and I got 25 bucks. and with it I bought a foam mattress. And I always thought I'm like, la- I'm like sleeping on my first poetry money, you know, <laughs> for like 25 years or something. Um, the most money I ever got for poetry was in 2015, and it was $30,000 from the Foundation for Contemporary Art, which is essentially Robert Rauschenberg's estate. This is the Susan Fontag, Fontag- Detail because in all the years it was one of those ones where you can't apply for you would just get so it's privilege you know it's like who gets the letter who gets the phone call and it was like very close to me it was very close to my community and I was always watching how many of the people who ever got it were queer and very few like virtually none which was so weird since Robert Rauschenberg was queer and what I saw that was so strange is the person who got it in the 60s was Susan Sontag for her poetry. Which I thought, that's very strange, because Susan Sontag didn't write poetry that, that I know of. And so I thought, I realized, this is like poetry, In that case was like a scam as a way to give Susan Sontag money by her friends. Which I thought, that's just, so it was just like always Susan Sontag's branding was the thing that was supporting her, rather than poetry. And that poetry was, you know, like an umbrella kind of Um, I think the poetry world I first affiliated myself with was always engaged with visual art. And getting this check in the mail was an incident of of basically was those chickens coming home to roost after 40 years. My money problem got different in the 90s when I was in my 40s because I began to more or less only do things that had to do with art or poetry to make my living. Um, My job job phase was over, but it didn't mean my money problems were over. It just meant that I had successfully contained my problem and made a decision (laughs) that it would only happen here, my money earning, um, from now on, and it did the grass got greener from that moment on. So I want to say two things about making money and writing poetry. One is that you should work your ass off getting good. I mean I just think that means reading a lot of poetry, old and new, writing a lot of poetry, and looking for resonance in other art forms and making friends with those people. Your willingness to make friends with people in other art forms or fiction writers or art journalists or whatever makes the scene of the crime, i.e. poetry, larger both in influence and possibility. I've always struggled with a notion that I got introduced to a long time ago, which is that you have to make friends with people who are wealthier than you. Um, which is really weird, but very. I don't mean go after them literally, though I've done that too. Um, but you will encounter them, and the hardest thing about being a poet without money is that you might resent the rich. The 1% sucks, there's no question about it, but since we are embedded in capitalism, as every one of us, feel, we have to say this. Even as you speak, you really have to allow fellow feeling to even extend to people who publish with larger presses than you do and artists who sell their work for a fortune. Don't ask these people for things. Extend to them access to your greatness. Be friendly. I don't mean smile but not putting up a poet firewall against privilege, you know, which I think is really hard. It's really hard to be graceful with people who have more money than you. But I feel like it's actually it always pays off. The best thing poetry can do besides simply doing what it does, and I think this is a practical panel, so I'm trying to keep there in a practical place, is always maintaining that the primary thing that we do is the work. If poetry is only a gig to get you someplace else, it won't work. Well, actually, it might get you there. I think poetry has a way of expanding and bleeding its moment into other moments. That's the reality of Patti Smith. It's like Patti Smith was a poet whose great career move was to leave poetry. Or Eula Bliss, if you were at this panel, which was either in this room or a room that looked like this, and it was filled to the rafters, you know, and the fact of that panel that was so interesting was three out of four poets, two of whom don't discernibly write poems anymore, but poetry gave them this, which was a another craft and a tremendous audience. Um, great writing and spaciousness so poetry is definitely an on the way sport that informs everything it touches but I'm saying I am saying that you must make it be the prime thing even in your existence your breathing your loving your thinking your organizing a reality. Poetry is not a, it really isn't a money thing but if you let it have this absolute beauty of that exquisite Truth, I think that's its dignity, which is that it is something that doesn't have to do with money. I mean, like, my joke in one of my poems is, like, like did you laugh at your mother for giving you oatmeal in the morning? I wasn't paying her, and so on. I mean, it's just that exquisite cr- truth, that can possibly accidentally... The thing about free things, and poetry being the one we're talking about, it accidentally, especially if you don't get in the way of money, money can be one of its gorgeous side benefits, it, and it happens, actually, a lot. You can be okay in the end, and I don't know what the end means. I'm 65 years old, so maybe I'm at the end, but I'm sort of planning. This is the the beginning of the end, which is like another 30 more years or or so. I probably won't live past 100. But this prime thing, which is the beauty and the dignity and your dedication to the act of making a poem, has to be and stay in your heart and ultimately guide all your acts. It is your boat. Okay, I mentioned economic realities and MFA programs. I'm going to go back and forth. That's how my boat acts. Certainly, cheap rent makes the spaciousness of the poet possible. While the East Village was becoming a punk rock neighborhood and an art neighborhood, neither of which it is now, poets were hanging out abundantly like barnacles. That is no longer possible now, which explains, say, the abundance of poetry in Portland. But I think honestly you could make anything work, but you've got to treat that economic problem like your studio and a community issue. I think six poets could live in a $3,000 apartment and institute quiet times and sex times and have a whole pattern of working in this cafe or that. You don't have to be reduced to becoming a machine that only works or only gets, p- gets a PhD as a way to exist in New York or someplace else expensive. Figuring out the dynamics of surviving in an expensive city that you love is just as valuable uh, maybe more than getting an MFA, because you can write about it. Whatever you did to figure out how to be here, you write about. You can make a blog about it. I think it would resemble the formation of a new institution, the formulation of that thought, how do I do this? Like, think of all the empty spaces in cities and beautiful places parking the capital of the rich. I read, in, I read on this benefit here the other night for Avenues, which was the, a homeless program, and one of their programs is a home shelter program for teens. You know, like a rich dyke couple has an extra bedroom and they take in a queer teen for a year. I believe the wealthy would also take in a poet. Maybe I'm crazy, but I think this is true. (laughs) Like, I was just in Marfa, you know, thus the cowboy hat, and there was so much empty real estate there of rich people, you know, and increasingly New York is coming that. I think the wealthy would take... And I I have been taken in by the wealthy several times in my life, and it was an amazing thing. I think this nonprofit could exist, but somebody would have to take on the job of making the impossible possible. Like, somebody would have to run the nonprofit. I do have so many other economic ideas I'm sharing some here but mainly I'm pushing them mostly to the side I've had a good idea and it was my career and it's turned out well I'm not it's turned out well I'm not ashamed to say career in French means like carrier poetry is my love and my gig gig meaning carriage same idea like if I was the poet laureate I would create a website matching poets to weddings funerals occasions and it would be like a dating site or pet finder (laughs) I gave my nephew a poem for his wedding and it was so wonderful and great. We are so needed. It comes out of my own sense of how good my work is and shouldn't it be distributed like rain or dandruff or a compelling idea. Don't ever forget that poetry has the power to change any room it enters and that's what everybody wants. Poetry's more powerful than drugs. So I'm not the poet laureate because I am relentlessly queer and gay and worse, I write about it. Because for me, my queer, trans, robust, wan, lesbian, homo, organization of self is normal for this self. My least favorite phrases of how I might ever get described as a poet are in your face, badass, and so on. Punk, too. I think there are always hidden ways of saying queer in a public culture that would still prefer, unless we're homogenized, white, young, normative, queer, middle-class, cheery, self-effacing, without genitals, queer, We are better labeled discreetly in-your-face, badass, punk, something. And it really disgusts me because I'm totally committed to dropping the crumbs of my sexuality where it randomly exists in my consciousness in the world. It's not a topic at all. It's not an extremity. It's not a style. I'm no longer young, but I feel young because all these problems of sex and money and visibility are still mine, still compelling. But I'm thinking America probably can't have a lesbian poet laureate who says the word pussy from time to time. I think America feels that that can't work. I'd like it to be wrong. I do connect this to the fundraising project of my life. We don't censor here in America in a frontal way. We censor culturally, like the way AWP puts two queer people on their list of 50 featured presenters, and supposedly it doesn't mean shit. Well, what did it mean? I think it means censorship, and I think that that means fewer gay books will be bought this year, fewer trans people will get jobs, fewer gay, trans, queer, bi, teens will think that writing poetry is for them, because what if if their awful awful secret came out? The economic scourge of heteronormativity in this literary community has got to end right now. That's my demand. MFA's. I have no feeling. It's like the subway. No, actually, I love the subway. It's like the bank. I use the bank. (laughs) My money goes through the bank. I do not have an MFA, but I teach in them. Supposedly not having one may have made my economic life bloom slower. I am not a slow-blooming poet, but as an economically viable poet, I am way that. MFAs hold people. MFAs give people time and space, and sometimes they give people debt. I think every school that has an MFA that charges people like $50,000 a year for two years should be charged with a hate crime, (laughs) a hate crime against poets. The money is there. With these schools, lots of these schools have huge endowments, and they just don't move it over to the MFA for the arts. It's really astonishing. I mean, Columbia, for example. It's frightening that a a school with that big an endowment somehow doesn't have any money for the arts. The money is there. The the joke of all the poet jokes is that we will pay for time and freedom when it is ours to claim. I say don't debt, or at the very least, don't pay it. Debt all you want, but don't ever fucking pay it. And I think that's a career, figuring out how to avoid that debt, that debt repayment. We are on the verge of an economic collapse, which we all know, which is part of why it's such a good time for poets. When the boat rocks, the poems pour. When bad things happen, especially money things, write. The space of sudden devastation and pure economic terror is a crazy, hairy, teeming, erotic studio. The best things in the world, I mean, when something horrible happens, you almost have an orgasm. It's like, oh, my God, (laughs) you know. The 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 best things in the world have been written in unbelievably bad circumstances. I'm not suggesting you court economic horror, but if you're there, write it up first. Make it pay. It only hurts if you are impotent. Economic devastation is power if you make it your show. Naked screaming poets is my favorite thing in the world. I just came from a residency in Marfa, Texas, funded by the Lannan Foundation. This is the irony of my poor queer life. I get everything now. And and I s- subscribe my success to the purity of my heart. And like my res- any residency, this Marfa residency has some lore. All of them have a weird, perverse little money story that you get when you go to the residency. And th- sometimes it's videotape, sometimes it's a book, um, but sometimes it's just like, it's just... Um, talk apparently when they started the residency they would give people a year this British poet got it and he was having a hard time and his marriage was ending and his wife came and they would have these huge drunken naked knockout drag down fights in the street in the middle of the town and he got arrested a few times and he was put in a cage naked in the middle of town like they had this like 18th, 19th century um, jail that was like sort of a joke but they actually put this poet in there it was very Kafka-esque They were all the way out, this couple, I was told, naked screaming poets in the middle of town. I guess they rethought the project after that, giving us shorter residencies and our spouses and partners and lovers can't come. And that's where I came in. But I feel like naked screaming poets are out there someplace or inside of me, always ready to return our genius and our id, our willingness to do everything and not be small. You can't forget us. Now, I thought it was a good name for a band, which, of course, is another poet job I'd like, naming things. Put that on my poet website, a poet naming things. And I've been doing this since high school. I was, like, really good in art in high school, so I was, of course I was forced to go to a Catholic high school that had no art. But there was this after-school program, and by then I was so jaded I just didn't make art anymore. But I would, like, just hang out and, and give them titles. Like, I feel like that was my first poet job, and I should have been paid. This is my dream, a poet naming things and we're getting paid for it while sitting on a blanket by the sea, jumping in the water enthusiastically, or, you know, getting a tan, um, getting a tan in the desert. That's my plan. Thanks.
1: (laughs) Wow, this is so much fun. And do the panelists have questions for each other?
4: I, w- I guess I was wondering when you were describing the um, the Portuguese, pro- I wondered did you use Sister Spit as the model? Because I thought about that, it's sort of like everything that's done has been done before, and mm. I don't mean that in a pejorative right. sense, but yeah. it's so interesting, because it really just started as an open mic, and just grew and grew and grew, and it was like every single oh. thing you described, I thought, really? you know.
3: It is interesting, like Sister Spit, and you know, like, I used to tour with a group that was like, modeled like directly on Cine and Linny and whatever, but the idea of saying, well, what is it I want to do, and then how can I do it? You know, it's sort of, like, at the base of everything we're talking about. Right. But even when I'm talking to, like, the guy waiting to hear back about his, you know, his bar test, I'm like, what do you really want to do? Mm-hmm. Like, this test aside, you know what I mean? Like, what do you really want to do? You know, and I think that's, it goes to this question. It's mm-hmm. like, well, I want to I go around the country and say poems. Okay, well, you know, three of us women did that in the early 90s because we had, like, I sold my car and bought a van, and we're like, well, we just need gas money, which, thank God, was cheaper back then. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's this question yeah. of, like, what do I really want? We get caught up in this idea of, like, I need to build a life mm-hmm. that is this big thing. And it's like, okay, no, but what do you really want to do? And Sister Spit did that, and you did that, you know, with this group. And it's like, okay, what do you want to do? And then you just f- figure it out. But I think it's figuring out, like, what's the minimum, right? Like, what's the, what's the baseline, you know, uh, who, who'll kick in for that? Who wants it? Right. You know? And so who'll sponsor it? Or, you know, you know, do I have a, an aunt who owes me money or, you know, like wants her name on something, you know, or, name like, on the the you know, like who cares? About, I mean, this is also, I spent years as a nonprofit fundraiser. So like the question is who wants to reach the people that you reach, mm-hmm. you know? And then are they within your sphere of integrity? Like, okay, well maybe mm. Camel Cigarettes wants to reach the teenagers I work with. Oh, I'm not, so down with that, okay, no. You know, but maybe the makers of these fancy pens really wants to reach these kids. All right, I'm pretty down with fancy pens, you know, and so it's like, what do you want to do? Who else wants that and would get behind
0: it, you know? Yeah, of course. Um, It's also not just that, I mean, in addition to what you said, it's also not just the activity that you originally start out with. Like, I, I was listening to a panel about couple days ago and someone was sharing about she was teaching a freshman composition class and that was kind of the goal of freshman composition class but the underlying real thing that she wanted to do was make her students better people and teach social justice and a bunch of other things so it's like you know it looks like maybe the goal is to you know read in 30 cities but Mm -hmm. under underneath that there are other like more real goals Mm -hmm. You know, and and I think we need to. That's what taps into. That's Mm -hmm. what people they go, oh, it sounds great, this thing, but it's sort of the underlying change that really makes the connection. Yeah.
3: Well, I think that's true. Even if we talk about like MFAs and teaching in academia, it's like if what you want to do is teach, there's a lot of ways to do that. Right.
1: Well, I think we are out of time, but uh, thank you so much for coming, and thank you, amazing panelists. I feel like I learned so much. This is wonderful.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.